We spend more time than anything else talking about whether we're on purpose or not. It's just always coming back to making sure that you're doing what you say you're doing and what you set out to do. You know, just making sure that we don't lose sight of, of the prize. I was recently listening to Bruce Springsteen be interviewed about writing great music. He said that an artist's job is to get your audience to care about your obsession, the things that you think are most important and most vital and most essential than anything else in the world. Now, personally, I like hearing about people's obsessions, especially if I enjoy the fruits of the obsession itself. Today's guest is part of one such obsession that I enjoy hearing about, and that is striving to make the greatest red wine in the world. Don Weaver is the estate director of Harlan Estate in Oakville, California. You'll hear Don and I discuss the connection between conversation and spectacular winemaking. See if you disagree with him as he explains the distinctive and unique connection between a glass of red wine and great conversation. Here is my conversation with Don Weaver of Harlan Estate on Tell Me What to Say. Thank you, Don, for, for hosting us. My great pleasure. Uh, here today. Um, not, a, not a bad place to have to sit to figure out good conversations. That's for sure. So as I, as I warned you, uh, the, the first question that the listeners uh, expect, in a nutshell, uh, is what did you want to be when you were a little kid? Yeah, well, I wanted to be uh, Davy Crockett, actually. And uh, I had one of those Fess Parker uh, raccoon tail hats pretty much permanently affixed to my head from about age four to about age eight. Wow. And uh, that, that to me was the most exciting uh, thing I could think about. Uh, th that obviously didn't hold up for a long time. I realized Davy Crockett wasn't really a job. <laughs> uh, as I got a broader view, it wasn't very much longer beyond just kidship that I wanted to be a painter. Uh, I loved to draw. My, my mom inspired, I think, my interest in fine art. And uh, I was particularly attracted to uh, the sort of great uh, Northern Renaissance painters. And so as I went to school, as I pursued an academic career, I was interested in painting and art history. Uh, particularly this sort of Flemish period. I, I, I'm still at a loss as why that in particular resonated <laughs> with me. But, um, and, and over time, I guess I realized that as interested as I was in that, I didn't have the gift to the point of being able to actually feed myself with my art. So um, I came to this crashing conclusion that I, I more likely be a house painter than a a fine artist, and it was uh, fortunate at that time that I, uh, well, I tried to convert that fine arts background into a commercial art application and hated every minute of that. I was an art director for a publishing company and really didn't enjoy that sensibility. And that's when my first opportunity to 
enter the wine business was presented. Um, I had sold everything I owned. I was ready to go to Europe, spend a year studying all those great paintings I had seen only in books. When a friend who I was going to travel with said, you know, if you want to wait another six weeks, I think I can get us a job in the Napa Valley. And we came here in, uh, for the harvest of 1975 and had a ball just as hose monkeys, you know, pulling hose and making uh, wine at a little cooperative up in St. Helena. We went to Europe, came back 10 months later, and what do you know, the next harvest uh, of 96 was here, and that's when I decided, forget being an artist, I'm going to be a winemaker. Got it. So it, you went through, you were telling me before, you went through uh, a, a, another winery, but I want to get us up to the point where uh, you begin to help the listener understand the story of where we are sure. and what it all represents. Sure. sure. Well, yeah, very easy to fast forward. Over, over the next dozen years or so, I worked for a handful of, of, of pretty respectable properties, uh, Behringer. I was the cellar master at Heights Cellars for a number of years. That was a great apprenticeship. So by 1970, well, by 1985, I had put together a little bit of a CV as, as a qualified winemaker, although I had never trained for it. Uh, and that's when I was introduced to Bill Harlan. He had come to Napa Valley uh, years earlier to develop Meadowood Resort. But I came to understand he was completely obsessed with the idea of trying to create a great wine from Napa Valley that could one day be considered among the great wines of the world. So here, here's a guy with a little wagon. I see a guy with a big wagon. And I thought, you know, here's, here's somebody I feel like I could really hitch my, uh, make my contributions alongside and really make a consequence. And, uh, so it was a very attractive uh, offer. I went to work for him as a winemaker uh, in 1990, excuse me, 1985. Do you remember meeting him the first time? And what was your uh, impression and feeling about what was going to happen? Uh, well, it was interesting. Um, I had, I had known him really by sight and, and through his reputation. Uh, he was quite a figure in San Francisco society. He was the, the sort of new owner of Meadowood, and I loved what he had done up there. But I had never met him. Uh, I was referred by a friend that maybe he'd be looking for some help. I went down to meet him. He was actually on the crush pad of a place he had, he had rented uh, to, to make his first harvest of wine. He, was, he and his wife actually were in their khakis and t-shirts out on the crush pad trying to figure out which end of the pump was the right end. I happened to walk up just at the right time to, to be able to help them kind of figure out what they were doing. And about 10 minutes later, had a handshake deal to, to come to work for him. I told him I needed to go home and at least change my clothes and, and come back. And uh, later that night, about 1 o'clock in the morning, I was... I was filtering a small batch of wine uh, by the headlights of my car in the pouring rain, wondering if I'd really made the right career move. Right. But uh, yeah, he just somehow inspired me by 
what he had to say about what he wanted to do. Right. Right. Maybe there was a piece of that for me too. Right. As I, as I think you've noticed, <clears throat> if, as you've looked at the podcast a little bit, and certainly anyone who's mm-hmm. been listening, uh, the word inspiration comes up a lot, and the word uh, or the words and the phrase is what he said uh, or what <laughs> she said. Uh, the connection between people taking a bit of risk, people uh, seeing something that doesn't yet exist is typically driven by the language and the mess, obviously the messages that people choose. And as elementary as that sounds, I certainly know it's the purpose of the podcast that people get reinforcement from stories like yours, from stories like some of the other guests, that that is it. That is where it's, it takes place. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. That, and so we go there. Now comes back to how did I, how did I end up finding out about this uh, winery? I was starting my business uh, in 2000. Uh, came out right out of the box as the sole proprietor of the Kugler Company. Uh, in, in January of 2000, and I happened to pick up soon after that a copy, because I like to cook, uh, a copy of Food and Wine. There was some good pasta recipe or whatever it was, and there was this article which uh, maybe we'll, we'll put up a link for it uh, on, the, on, on your page on the podcast that talked about the story of this guy named Bill Harlan and what was unique and what so grabbed me, which I want you to talk about was this place in all of its grandeur, this place, this business is only about wine for a certain reason, mm. for, for the mark that it makes, as I understand it, talk about the mark that it makes in the world and in people's lives. Can you, because that's what really grabbed me, he's a, a philosopher, the article. Mm-hmm. You don't read about a philosopher often. No, that's in true. Wine. That's true. And, so. and here's a guy who had a career in real estate who was making wine, but somehow in that article, particularly, I think uh, the journalist really captured that sort of philosopher king aspect. And, and this was a luxury Bill could afford a little bit more by then. Um, as a risk taker, he, he wasn't sure exactly what his odds were. He wanted to have as many things in his favor as possible. He certainly knew it was all about great land, and, and he felt like he'd captured a very special place, which is where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, he felt that he knew he needed to differentiate himself and, and break away from what everybody else was doing in order for it to be something worthy of, of uh, people's attention and maybe give it the possibility of lasting. Because mm-hmm. uh, longevity was the real measure, I think, of success in this regard. Um, but I think everyone that has any involvement with wine understands, at least anecdotally, um, what it's capable of. And I think red wine in particular, maybe unlike any other uh, beverage or spirit, um, has this very humane quality to it that, that ties you somehow with a lot of history, um, your own and, and that of the world as well as this engagement. It, it, it sort of nurtures conversation. It, uh, people sort of tend to wax poetic in a way that, I, honestly, it doesn't happen to me with white wine or, or other things that I love as well. But red wine, to me, gets inside your soul at some point. And it, 
and it connects you to other people. All the great wines that I can remember drinking, I, I shared with someone. Um, the other details tend to fade away. We're, we're obsessed on, but we remember the vintage and the producer. And, and I think this was something that, that everyone has at least a brief encounter with. Right, right, that's for sure. Uh, after I read that article, to prove the very point you just made, uh, I had a, a, a client, uh, a group of, a management committee of a law firm. Mm. And they had uh, had a very good year and uh, were doing a management retreat in New York. And they wanted to do uh, a, a team building event for, frankly, a group of gentlemen who didn't really like to think of themselves as a team. They <laughs> liked to have thought of themselves as great lawyers or great administrators. Uh, and we ended up, this will all, I'm sure the place will ring a bell to you. The place was called Veritas. Mm. And they a, invited a, a me. A veritable temple of wine. I, I had been asked to facilitate their team discussions for a couple days, and then we were going to go to Veritas for dinner. Uh, so I made sure that with part of the very generous <laughs> fee they had provided me to do this work, that uh, by the time they arrived, there was a bottle of Harlan on the table. Cool. That was 2002. To this day, 15 years later, when I run into one of these guys, inevitably, and I'm not exaggerating, mm. do you remember that bottle of wine? And that is, that is a story. It was, it was a lot of money for somebody like me yep. and worth, worth, the, worth the memory, worth the, 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 the connection, right? Mm. So that's really what always connected me to the, to the notion. So let me, let me get at that. Uh, anybody who has now sat and listened to this podcast has probably already Google searched uh, uh, Harlan Estate Wine, and up has come its, uh, its premium uh, pricing, mm -hmm. uh, the, some of the story of how hard it is to get. My question, and in all communication, in all, all creation of meaning, the best are created, as I say, deliberately and with intention. It is not accidental that this is what it is. There was a purpose. So talk to, the, talk to me for sure so I can continue to understand it, but the, how did you decide to create not just a wine, but this wine at this premium uh, top, top, top line quality and demanded resource to, to create? Well, intention is the right word, Drew, I think. Um, and Bill Harlan is, is for me, the, still the world's most curious man. He, he, he wants to know everything he can about every possible subject. Um, and he's relentless in, in pursuing what it is that really interests him. Um, we had a brief conversation off Mike about his evolution and how he came to be in the wine business, but it really all came together uh, where this romantic notion of perhaps making wine was brought into a crystalline focus when he had spent about a month in, in the fine wine regions of the, of the old world, in Bordeaux and Burgundy, <coughs> pardon me, having met with some of the great producers uh, of all time in their homes, in their estates, in their chateaus, walking their land, hearing their stories, dining at their tables, 
he was he got a much broader appreciation into what this commitment to make not just great wine but to create a legacy and to create a contribution to the world that would live beyond your lifetime and, and add to the texture and the warp of life. And so he, he came back really with the resolve to create, in quotes, a first growth of California, admitting there is no such thing. I think we're probably glad about that. But what that meant to him and, and the message that we took to the world was we were committed to doing something, whatever we could to influence the quality, to, to deepen the commitment to continued improvement. Um, that's what he set out to do, which is a big task. And uh, he, again, knew it was about capturing the right land. He had done his research. He was a risk taker, a gambler, poker player but he wanted to have as many odds on his side. He knew that some of the greatest wines from California had come from the western side of Napa Valley. Um, most of them had come from the valley floor or just at the foot of the hills. But based on what he'd seen in places like Tuscany and Burgundy, he came to understand that the great, many of the great wines came from the hills. This is something the Romans knew. You could plant grapes where nothing else would grow. And those grapes would work a little bit harder and, and have to struggle a little bit more for nutrients. So he was committed to capturing the right piece of land with slope for drainage and exposition. Uh, we had reasons to believe this property had the right kinds of soils, although it had never been uh, cultivated. And so he took the big risk to, to buy this land, to clear the forest, uh, certain sections of it, 85% of it remains very much the way we found it. It's, as you can see, it's a beautiful kind of natural reserve. But we also felt there was a scale at which we could go about this, which was making a couple thousand cases of wine. This wasn't a grand vision of maybe doing 20, 30, 50,000 cases of wine. This was about expressing a very specific piece of land in a very specific way. Mm. And to do that through <clears throat> good farming, thoughtful farming, uh, doing everything along the way in terms of handling the fruit, in terms of, but but we didn't want to just, we didn't see this as craftsmanship. We, we thought this was more artisanal. This was taking it into a, a realm where you're really trying to capture the essence as, as little as you can do. We're always looking for one less thing to do to try to get the very most authentic expression. And then, you know, I'm happy to say there were a lot of things that conspired to our to our success. It, the intention was very strong, and I think we were very much driven by what we believed was possible. But there were a lot of things that helped us and encouraged us along the way. Mm -hmm. As we were doing this, the, our first decade of making wine here, we had more good years than bad, which is California in a nutshell. Northern Europe is a much more challenging place to farm. We had a crazy economy that could support almost anything. We had the dot-com era in, in San Francisco. And then, uh, again, we had a, a team that was very dedicated to make great wine. We, we got it out into the world. We had a few people say some really nice things about us. Mr. Parker and others put some wind in our wings pretty early on in our, in our first releases. And so we were off to a, an auspicious beginning. And because we made so little, and because it became so highly sought after, 
that added an extra element, um, I think, that, that also added an almost mystical quality. Everybody wants what they can't have. And so I went, I found myself in a position where I was more about handing out disappointment than I was about satisfaction. Yeah. yeah. And that, that lent a, a little different era to the, to the wine business. Right. So that intention and, and what you have created and presented to the world, I'm curious, though, how, if it does, how does it affect the, the interworkings of the organization, the conversations that take place? Mm -hmm. I think I've read that you and Mr. Harlan and uh, the there's a key group of you that have known each other for years. That has its own, um, you know, special effect. But this intention to be the very best. Yes. Uh, how does it change working here? Very good question. Um, yeah, we spend, we spend more time than anything else talking about really whether we're on purpose or not. It's just always coming back to, to making sure that you're doing what you say you're doing and what you set out to do. As I say, it, it's largely a strategic talk that the tactics kind of take care of themselves. But we do have this sort of inner uh, group of, of those of us that have been involved for the longest time. It's our winemaking team, our, our viticulturist, um, and, you know, just making sure that we don't lose sight of, of the prize, really. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then once you've been honored by this sort of patronage, how do, you, how do you honor that? How do you continue to foster that relationship? And because, again, we weren't really in a position to have to sell our wine, it was about it was about making sure it went in, out into the world in a way that positioned us as auspiciously as possible. We knew we needed to be international. And so we would talk about not so much channels of distribution and, and markets, share, and all this. It was just talking about how do we find the individuals, the sort of true believers, who will resonate with what, what it is that we're doing. How do we talk to them? How do we treat them? Um, how do we differentiate ourselves from the thousands of other people that are trying to do the same thing? And, you know, while th there wasn't just any one person that was in charge of that, it, it was always collaborative. We wanted to help keep each other on track, be a resource for each other. And while there's room for everyone's personality in this, we wanted everything to kind of fit into the central vision and be consistent regardless who was delivering that message. What I, what I can envision in this group of you sitting together, and please correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, though obviously the, the Philosopher King uh, image is from the magazine, it sounds like the essence of the conversation in those rooms, as often or as rarely as they happen, uh, are, are shared conversations. There's not one dominant voice. You know, lots of research these days points to the highest performing teams as literally having shared voices, mm. not what you think of as the big mouth person. Uh, no, well, well, Bill, there's no question. Bill is our, 
our, uh, our sort of leader and El Supremo, uh, he's very collaborative and, and mm -hmm. he, he has lots of, uh, he segments often his, his conversations. And this is why it's more always maybe our initiative that we always bring that information together so it's always shared. I see. I think as a, as a, the way he manages life, he, he's happy to work with the person sitting right in front of him on a, on a specific topic. The, the thing that we work as an organization to do is make sure we're all sharing that same Good. kind of information. I understand. So what's the, I don't know who we've ever asked you, someone's asked you this, but it's an obvious question to me. What's the hardest part about all this? This sounds so... <laughs> You know, thoughtful and intentional and deliberate and successful and beautiful. That's what you get by sitting here. But what's the, as one client used to say, what's the sand in your shoes, right? What's the... Well, I mean, farming is never easy. I guess, you know, that at the base level, all the beauty and the, and the romance and the romantic notions of wine are, are all superseded by a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and, and dusty, dirty farming. Uh, Nature is there to keep us humble and to, to challenge us. And, and God bless our team who does this so beautifully. Each year we're, we're learning, we're striving, we're trying everything that we can to sustain our land, to, to farm responsibly and sustainably and keep your vine health and your soil health alive and vibrant. And again, that takes a lot of innovation. We're not following any one uh, bright philosophy. We're, we're borrowing from any uh, ways of thought that we think makes for the best health of our property here. So that's, that's part of it. As far as sand in your shoes, I guess I come back to this scarcity kind of cuts both ways. You know, again, I was the, my role in my family was the pleaser. I was the one that took care and made sure everybody was having a good time. And, and yet I, I have not as many opportunities as I'd like to with as limited wine I'm, I'm handing out a certain amount of, of uh, disappointment. We're, we're never able to sell maybe quite as much wine to people as they'd like, which is frustrating. Um, and I think just uh, removing, staying out of the clutter, that, that takes a certain amount of work. You know, you have mm -hmm. to, you can't just rest and say, you know, we got this thing figured out, we'll just do this for the next 200 years. We're, right. we're challenging ourselves all the time. That's uh, it doesn't feel like a hardship, but it's, it's definitely a, something we're mindful of. And now we have a, a kind of a, a new audience. Our demographic is changing. The baby boomers bought us to the, brought us to the dance, but they're aging. Uh, I'm one of them. Uh, I'm drinking less wine than I used to. So we're, we're now having to find new dialogues, new messaging, new points of engagement, new ways of, of meeting the next generation that will uh, take us. We're also, within the organization, going from Mr. Harlan to, to Will Harlan III, uh, H. William Harlan III, Will, who is, is Bill's son, who is now very much involved in the business. So we are at this stage of... of uh, succession with the next generation, as well as a sort of subtle shift in our, our market support and, and audience. Got it. So we need, we need to create, we need to, to find out what gets this group excited in a way that's different from 
those that got us here. A new challenge. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll close with one quick story of something that, that uh, Don taught me. Uh, he, he probably doesn't even know it. Um, I signed up for the mailing list. I was obviously, and it might have been at least the rumor at that point was it's a mailing list to get on the mailing list, something of that, <laughs> of that, of that narrative. Oh, gosh. But uh, Don, uh, as the, at that point, overseeing the marketing, wrote, they didn't send you an email. That was the first thing, because there wasn't in that time, it wasn't a very active way of communicating. So you had to send um, cards and to explain you know, what was happening. And you wrote a card, or it came under your signature, mm -hmm. and you used the term about um, something, the phrase was, inviting my interest. And I always remembered that as a way to talk with people, that you can't force them, you can't, I've always told clients, you can't make people change. You can only invite them and their interest and their emotion to, to, to come to you. And that note, which you wrote or authored uh, 17 years ago, has guided my work. Wow. It really has. That, that is, uh, that is yeah. I'm, I'm blushing from head to toe, first yeah. of all. That, that's, that's cool. That's, that's really heartening for me. And, um, and it really is, uh, I don't, of course, it would be cool to save it, but, but they only, they only uh, went by snail mail, <laughs> even as email, which some other wineries do not, uh, certainly do not. Um, but sure enough, uh, this has been, as I had hoped, um, a, an amazing experience. Uh, we're, uh, Ari and I are lucky enough to go have a little tour of the winery now. So not such a tough job we have at times. Um, but most off, Don, thank you uh, for, for, for helping me uh, and uh, hopefully helping the listener. That well, was, it's been lovely goal. having you yeah. here. I hope yeah. that uh, we've, we've created a spark in there somewhere. And I, I hope so. you'll return. Uh, we will. Thank you, Don. Cheers. Cheers.